Strong Enough merch is now available. Go to strongenoughpod.com and see all the things that you can get to show your strong enough pride, as well as remind people and yourself that you are strong enough and you are worth it. Welcome to the Strong Enough Podcast, where we talk about the challenges and celebrate the triumphs of people just like you. I'm your host, Claudia. Today's guest is going to talk about his background in education as both a teacher and an administrator. He's going to share experiences that he went through, including potential school shootings and being bullied by school board members. He's also going to talk about how these experiences helped him to become a best-selling author. Please help me welcome Dr. Randy Overbeck. Randy, how are you today? I am doing super. It's a beautiful day here in Ohio, and uh, it's always a good day to tell, tell a good story. Well, I am really excited to have you here. I think we are going to have some really cool things to talk about, but I have to start with, are you an Ohio State fan? I am an Ohio State fan. I have been um, I have been a um, modeling Ohio State fan until a few years ago when my granddaughter decided to go to Ohio State. So now we are an avid Ohio State fan. In fact, I could probably parade about four or five of my shirts here, but and we are we are in mourning after uh, the loss to Michigan. Yes, the answer the answer question is yes. Uh, I'm also in mourning because I'm a Florida State fan. So we are uh, super unhappy with the committee's decision on uh, being left out. So hopefully we will be able to go down and roll over Georgia uh, in a few weeks here. That would be uh, that that would actually make Ohio State fans very happy, probably. Excellent. So we can be on the same side for okay. at least a few weeks. And actually, I'm a Florida State fan, too. I have a I have a niece that went there as well. Excellent. Well, Randy, we have a lot in common, and we could probably talk football for this entire time, but we're not going to do that. I would love it if you would tell the audience a little about yourself other than we love some football. I'd be glad to. Well, I think the first thing is uh, um, I'm a uh, veteran educator. I serve children mostly in Ohio for about 40 years as a teacher, um, a school uh, college professor, and a school leader. 28, 28 of those years, I actually ran school districts as a assistant superintendent and superintendent. I've been retired for a few, and um, I turned a lot of my experiences in schools into stories, and I am. My fifth uh, book was launched by uh, Wild Rose Press in October. Uh, they're doing okay. I've got two of them on the bestseller list. I've got 10 national awards, so and readers seem to appreciate it. Hundreds of five-star reviews between across all of them, so I'm pretty happy about that. As you should be. Uh, first off, thank you for your service to our kids. I know that you have gone through some challenges there. One of the things is you use some of your interactions uh, as inspiration for book characters, but I know that you've had some challenging interactions as you have gone through the school district and, and teaching. One of them I'd like to talk about is school shootings, because I, I know, unfortunately, we have seen a great rise 
in mass shootings in general across our country, um, school shootings as well. And I believe that you've had at least one interaction with a school shooter or potential school shooter. So I would love it if you would talk a little about that to the level that you're comfortable. Uh, two, actually. Um, and my involvement, I don't want to, I don't want to over exaggerate my involvement. My involvement is part of the team, the administrative team that uh, first discovered and then uh, found out uh, and then found out where the gun was and eventually got rid of it. But uh, I should explain that I, at that particular time, I served in a very diverse um very diverse school organization that had kids from all levels, everything from a national merit scholars to uh, kids uh, in gangs. I mean, we, we we ran the gamut. And on two occasions, we had had potential problems with school shootings. Uh, fortunately, you know, here's the, here's the sad part, that for everyone that hits the news, there are probably hundreds that could have happened, but are luckily able to be prevented because of good work by uh, by adults figuring out what's going on and that's what happened here most of the time even if kids intend to do harm uh, they're usually bragging first before they're doing before they want to do that that's not always the case but most of the time and in my cases that's exactly what happened so uh, and in these two cases two different individuals two different students one was a junior high student one was a high school student brought a gun to school. And this is before, you know, we're talking, oh, probably 15, 20 years ago. So this is before a lot of the provisions uh, and, the, and the cautions were put in place. But fortunately, when kids do that, they generally brag to somebody. And kids are, you know, normally kids are not good at telling on each other, but for, for things like that, man, it goes quickly. And what happened was um, the, the kids, let's see, how did it go? The kid showed another kid the gun in the bathroom. That kid put it away. That kid, I think he put it back in his locker. And that kid went and told somebody else who told a teacher. Teacher quickly got to the administrator. The administrator isolated the kid and uh, searched the locker in Ohio, at least. I don't know how it is in Colorado, but in Ohio, the lockers are property of the school, not property of the kids. And actually, in Ohio, we can search the kid's trunk because if they park on school property, uh, that becomes school re responsibility, not so. And, and the second case was very similar, except the gun was in the trunk, and we discovered the the first was a handgun that, was, that had been brought in. The second one was a rifle that was in the in the trunk. Now the kid claimed he was hunting, and we do have a big hunting perspective, and he was just uh, making fun when he was telling his friends that he was going to shoot them. But uh, yes, they were both pretty scary. Um, and hardly anyone else knew about anything until it was over. So that part was good. The, 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 the community was not traumatized. The students, except the few that were involved in the circle and knew about it, didn't know what was going on. We didn't have to shut the school down. We didn't have to do any of those things. But when that potential is there, it, it uh, very much, I can't underestimate how scary that situation is when you're, when you know what's going on. You said 15 to 20 years ago, and so, of course, my brain goes immediately to 1980. Um, unfortunately, I know that that's not 15 to 20 years ago anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> Do you feel like there's been a shift 
since the early 2000s to where peers are less likely to tell an adult about something like that if another schoolmate, you know, says or shows them, I have a gun, I'm going to shoot everything up. Do you think that's changed that there are less kids that are going to share that information or more? No, I don't think, I don't think that's changed. I think, I think in most schools, uh, kids are acutely have, have been made acutely aware of that danger and kids for, you know, for all they're always stick together, that, that, that kind of goes by the wayside. I think what's happened in several of the school shootings, let's start with Columbine, because that's kind of where everything got, got horrendous. Mm-hmm. Those two kids were isolated. They were not, they, they didn't have others that they reached out to to brag about what they were going to do. And I think you would find that in many of these cases, the individual shooter is either, either very isolated, so he doesn't have people that he's bragging to, or he, there's a, the group is very small and that group stays small. And those kids, no, they don't, they're not going to open their mouth. It's usually the side kid that overhears something. That's generally where the information gets sent up the chain and, and then diffused. Do you feel like there's anything that school administrators or teachers can do differently or better just in general to try and thwart some of these attacks that are still continuing to this day? Uh, I, I, I think there are a few things. There's not much, I th- my answer should be, I think their, their options are severely limited of what they can do. Um, uh, um, most of these things are not preventable. You know, I think of the horrendous one uh, in the Uvalde, where it wasn't mm-hmm. a member of the school community it was somebody, the immediate school community it was somebody outside that community. So there, it wasn't like there was somebody that could have known something to you know to do that. And I, I can tell you that as school leaders, we struggle between the idea of turning schools into a, into a walled fortress. Uh, that you know, and what that does to the psyche of the kids, and with that on one side, and balancing the kids' safety on the other side, it's a it's a very difficult act to try to try to do. I think the best that we can do this is for school leaders and people who and parents. I think we need to have an honest conversation with our kids about that. I I, I would guess that um, most of the school shootings that I have, let me rephrase that, most of the school shootings that occur in a place where that, where the shooter was involved, okay, so not Uvalde, okay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. most of those are an outgrowth of other problem, bullying, what's different now, I mean, when I was in high school in the 60s, I got plenty, I got bullied plenty too, the difference between now and then is we have a different gun culture now than we did in the 60s. And that gun culture has now infected kids the same way that it infects everybody across. So I don't know how much school leaders can do about that, except have those conversations about, you know, there are other ways to resolve your issues. You can always go talk to an adult. There's always somebody, hopefully, I mean, that's what we pride ourselves in schools. There's always somebody who will have your back. You come to them and say, look, this guy is doing X, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I think that's the best defense that schools 
that schools have is creating an atmosphere of open communication, being attentive to the, I mean, bullying is a very real problem. I'm not, I'm not, but my, but my perspective is it's always going to be there. It's part of human nature. So you figure out ways to have communication about it, how we resolve those issues. You try to address it as best you can. Yes, there are instances that I have read about involving a school shooting where administrators knew of the bullying issue and really didn't do enough to resolve it. So they share some of that responsibility for the eventual problem that occurred. It, I, that has to be on that. That has to be a primary responsibility of school leaders to figure out. Okay, what can we do here? I, we can't do everything, but there are there are options that we can do, and then push those options as best we can. You mentioned bullying, and you know, you said you as a um, as a young man in school were, was bullied. Uh, I think a lot of us share those stories, um, no matter what we look like or where we came from. But we often hope that those things end when we leave school. Uh, and unfortunately, that is not the case. And we often find ourselves as adults in circumstances who are being bullied. And that can be really challenging as well on our mental health. I know that you have experienced at least one incident of bullying as an adult when it comes to uh, board members, or I'm presuming school board members, will you talk a little bit about that experience and how it affected your mental health and what challenges it brought to you? Yeah, and I've had more than one, but let's talk about the one that you're referring to. I, um, I, I think uh, what the problems that I encountered were most often um, uh, caused by a conflict between philosophy. So let's start with that. So I'll be right up front with you. When I, when I was an administrator for all four districts that I served, teachers repeatedly heard me preach that our job is to serve children. Uh, it's not to warehouse them. It's not to provide babysitting service for parents. Our job is to figure out what is the best what can how how can we create the atmosphere that gives the most kids the best chance for success when they leave us to go beyond, and we need to make decisions based on that. Uh, unfortunately, um, board members or for that matter administrators because they're both in that category are like everybody else. There are wonderful, great ones. There are ones that are selfish and uh, self-aggrandizing. I mean, it's just it's, they run the whole gamut, and and at the and I don't mean this in the most negative way, but at the bottom line, they're a politician. In, in Ohio, at least, they're all elected. So it's all about, well, what should I do? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the bullying came because uh, they, in this particular case, a board member, was making a was, was trying to push decisions that, were, that I thought were not in the best interest of kids. Uh, wanted to cut programs that would hurt the most vulnerable of students, which is actually very common. So... Incidentally, on a, uh, and they were they were doing it. They would argue they were doing it for the right purpose. They were doing it because uh, funding numbers didn't look good, and we're trying to figure out. And as a result of that, we we uh, let's just say that uh, he uh, did his best to try to bully me, and eventually I lost my job over it. You know, but sometimes when you speak truth to power, that's kind of what happens, and that's that happened to me a couple of times in my career, but. That does not change my perspective because I honestly, 
my, my goal when I was in a, in, in a position of responsibility was, remember, we got into this job in the service of children. So, yes, we got to pay attention to how much money we have. Yes, we have to pay attention to passing the next levy. Yes, we have to not overburden teachers. All of those things are important, but they don't supersede the responsibility we have to children first. Uh, that it, uh, I mean, it was never physical harassment. Well, yeah, I guess I mean it wasn't physical harassment. It was it was uh, job place job harassment, and you know, and eventually. And and I don't know what how it works out there where you were, but administrators are under contract. But at the end of the contract, they serve at the pleasure of the board. So, mm -hmm. but you know what? It, that what I found in each case was uh, each time that that cost me, which was actually twice that happened. Um, I ended up in a better place, in a place where kids, a different set of kids, needed my skills more than where I had been before. God closes a door and He opens a window. I really believe that. I could not agree with you more, and I haven't been in a similar situation, but I have been in situations where speaking out cost me um, in the workplace, and it's really challenging to know that you're doing the right thing and you're speaking out on the right thing, and you get punished for it. How did that affect you, even though you did end up in better circumstances, as did I in my cases? But you still have that nagging feeling of, wow, I did the right thing and I still kind of got screwed over. Yep. How did you deal with that? Well, I, I'll tell you about my therapy in a minute. But but I and I don't want to for anybody else watching or listening to this. I don't want to um, belittle that experience. When I said I ended up in a better place, that is 100 percent true. There's no question about that. However, you don't know that in when you're in the middle of it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I've, in the, in the case of the first one, I had three children at home, a wife, I was you know, so immediately what goes, what, what you, what goes to is, well, like, how in the world am I going to support them and, you know, put food on the table and all. So for everybody else listening, he said, well, that's easy for him to say. No, it, believe me, it wasn't easy to say. It's easy to say looking backwards, but it's not easy to say, um, in, 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 the, in the moment, in the moment. I'm just as terrified or angry and terrified, I guess, probably as everybody else would be in those circumstances. But how I ended up dealing with it was I ended up um, uh, putting my using my experience. I want to try to phrase it using my experience as a as a jumping off point to create uh, uh, a story. What I found out was with uh, now the characters in all of my in all of my books are based very loosely on people that I work with. And in fact, most of the characters <clears throat> are actually composites of individuals that I'm, that, that you know, they might, uh, might have the face of one and, and, uh, and the walk of somebody else and the voice, you know, so most of them are all based on real people, but they're not the same people. But what I found was it didn't take very much tweaking of the real situation to place the, the, the villain in my story, meaning my real story, to become the villain in the act in the fictional story. The stories are not the same. The characters are not the same. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression, but, but it was, it was re incredibly relieving to, I can, in fact, I will tell you this, that the book that's out now, which I actually wrote the original version, the skeleton of it, some 20 some years ago, when this, when this occurred, 
I wrote 27 chapters in one night. So it was a very, very, really, uh, very, um, uh, it was a great relief to just get that down on paper. And it was very helpful. You know, it was one of the ways that I dealt with that trauma of a period of time and without taking it out of my wife and my kids and everybody else around because they were just as scared as I was. Well, no, the kids didn't know. The wife was just as scared as I was. So, you know. You mentioned therapy and we have talked a lot about therapy in different forms on this show. And we recognize still that for men, therapy is is tough sometimes. It, it's tough to admit that you're going through uh, a mental health issue, and then it's even more difficult to then go out and seek help. What allowed you to do that, and how beneficial do you think it was for you? And I, and I want to clarify two things. So the 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 the, the writing that. Uh, throwing all of my anxieties and using my experience as a starter for a story was cathartic on my point, and it was personal therapy. Having said that, I have also gone, not a little later, it was actually uh, several years later, to get some therapy for myself. When my mother died, I was very close to my mother. I went and got some therapy then. My wife and I have done therapy before, so. in my case, I have found, and, and in, in both cases, I found the therapy very helpful. Uh, it's not a magic wand. It doesn't wave and everything is fine. But having someone else who's a professional be able to ask the right questions and have you listen to yourself sometimes can really get you from a place that you're stuck to a place where you're unstuck. Um Yes, I know guys think to be macho. And yeah, I was barely brought up to kind of like suck it up and move on. Uh, And I try to do that, but that doesn't mean you can still suck it up and move on and still get help at the same time. I think that's that would be my answer, which is what I've tried to do on on a couple of a couple of occasions when I really needed it. I love that you found an outlet that became cathartic and therapeutic for you in writing. How did you find that, and how has it felt for you to take that form of therapy and turn it into a really successful venture? Well, um, how did I find it? Well, I've, I've, I've always been a writer, so one of the things that people might not realize is that uh, the job, the, the life of an administrator, of a school administrator, is about 30 to 40% writing. So there's a huge amount of writing around. Um, uh, when I was an administrator, I wrote newsletters, I wrote news articles, I wrote agendas, I wrote recommendations. I, you know, you name it, 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 it I would be writing every day something. I got to do this. Got you know. So the writing was just part of my nature. I've always been a writer anyway. I was a writer in high school. I actually toyed with the idea of trying to do that full time before the call to serve kids came, but. And so that, but that's never left. So that became kind of a natural avenue. And when this actually occurred, when the incidents that we're talking about occurred, I was actually in the middle of writing my dissertation. So if you're not familiar with the dissertation, the dissertation is in excess of a hundred pages to uh, of research that you've done. And I, and I, so I was drilling down hard on that, working on that almost on an every nightly basis. And I, at one point, I just kind of got this idea. Well. Let's put that, just put that aside for tonight. Let's do this. And 
what if we did this? Or how about if this guy did this? And it, it, as I started, it just kind of came out, just boom, 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 boom. And uh, it was uh, remarkably freeing. Now, I will, let me be honest, my first attempts were pretty plotting. You know, I, certainly there wasn't any great literature in what I wrote originally. In fact, that story has, has waited about 25 years for me to be good enough to actually put flesh on the bones and create a real story that's out now. But the nucleus of that story, the basic of how I laid it out and the basic tenets of the characters are pretty much as I envisioned it back in the 90s. And it just stayed um, it stayed there and waited in the drawer, so to speak, um, until I was at the point where I thought I could give it credence and tell it in a in a way that readers would appreciate. Now, I have not written a book, so I can't speak to this, but I would presume that books are similar to children, and we're not really supposed to have a favorite. But I would <laughs> love to know. If you have a favorite uh, of one of the books that you've written, and if so, why is that one your favorite? Well, I think since we're talking so much about this new one, I think I would have to choose a different, you know, in addition to this new book, which is called, oh, I should probably show that to the reader. So yes. New book is called Cruel Lessons. Uh, it's the story of a uh, drug dealer that's pushing a hallucinogen in middle school and high school. and um, Things get out of hand and a bunch of middle school kids use the drug, steal a car, crash and get killed. And this small town is just so, so traumatized they're, they they want vengeance, essentially. They, they want justice, but they want vengeance. Um, and that and that is the story. At least the skeleton is the story of what became that. So that has always rested close to my heart. Um, but if I had to choose a different one, I would probably choose the probably the middle book of my uh, of my trilogy. So I have a I have a trilogy called the Haunted Shore Mysteries, which are three three uh, story there. They're called the Cold Case Murder Mystery wrapped in a ghost story served with a side of romance. And in the, and in that story, I have another teacher hero who happens to see ghosts, so he's not happy about that. In the second book in the series, which is called, let me get it, which is called Crimson at Cape May, my hero, who's a who's a high school social studies teacher, um, meets um, a street kid who also happens to have the same power, 16-year-old goth street kid. And, um, and the story is actually told through his perspective as a 20-something adult and her perspective as a 16-year-old disgruntled uh, kid that had been dumped by her, by her family and stuff. Uh, and it's a, it's a very interesting, fun read in, in addition to a very serious one, because in this case, the, um, the murder that he investigates turns out to be tied to a human trafficking ring. So each of my, every one of my books, I attempt to use the, uh, the lure of fiction, the fun of the whodunit, to help readers learn about some serious issue that we're struggling with. So in Cruel Lessons, it's about youth experimentation with drugs, of course. And in Crimson and Cape May, it's about, um, it's about the horrible world of human trafficking, which I'm, most people know almost nothing about. I, I, until I wrote the book, I knew almost nothing about, did the research on 
So that would have to be one of my favorites, I think. I, you know, I, do I have a favorite a book child? Um, my daughter would tell you I, she's my favorite, but I probably better not better not admit to that. So. <laughs> we didn't hear anything. We don't know. Hey, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your process because you talked about, you know, not really knowing anything about human trafficking, but you want your books to be authentic, even though they're fiction. So talk a little bit about your process and how you learn about these subjects often that aren't a whole lot of fun, um, but you really have to immerse yourself in them to successfully write that book and to convince the readers that it's authentic. Well, I, the, um, I, I, for my, my first answer to that question is I'm, I, I get a lot of help. So the good thing for me is my job as a, as a, my job as a, as an educator was largely involved with research. So in other words, I was the one responsible at the district level to research anything that went into helping the kids learn, whether it was computers or, or technology programs or, or, or uh, uh, curriculum materials or textbooks or approaches or any of that. That was just so research is part of my DNA. So when I migrated to my skills to do some writing, I took that same skill with me. So in each in the in the case of the trilogy, each of the books deal with a very serious issue that we're struggling with. The first book is about um, is about racial injustice. The second book, as I mentioned, is about uh, human tra trafficking. And the third book is about abuse of migrants. So I, I deliberately choose something that um, I know some about, but not a lot about, that I think is important for people to know about. But I spend a lot of time researching that. In the event of cruel lessons, for here's a good example. Now, cruel lessons and the the drug here is a is a fictional drug. Takes place in the middle nineties. There's a very particular reason for that. Um, it's a hallucinogen that has some properties like LSD. I'm not used LSD. I've not been, but I went to. I had some colleagues who were former drug users who were very helpful in making sure that the details I got were at least plausible, even though the drug is fictional, were plausible. And that's the case in every one of my books. There's always things in the book that are way outside my realm of experience. So I go to somebody else in law enforcement. Um, in in the new book, <clears throat> without giving it away, there's a very there's a big sequence that involves a car turning over and crashing and stuff. Now, I don't I don't really know a lot about that. So I went to a mechanic and said, well, what would you do to do this? And how would it happen? And what would the... So that's the kind of thing that I do on a, on a regular basis. Because one of the things that I strive for in the book is to make sure that when, when, when people read it, that it's very credible to them. They, they believe this could happen, or in some cases did happen. Um, and they're also learning something that they may not have known before. I mean, that's when, when you read one of my books, you will know more about the drug culture than you did before you started. Uh, or in this case, 
you'll learn some really horrible truths about human trafficking that you really maybe not didn't want to know, but everybody should know. So that's now the the books aren't didactic. Nobody would believe that this is teaching them about that. But my goal is to at least raise awareness of the issue so that people go, really? I didn't really know that would happen like that. So that's kind of where that's kind of where I come from. And research is like the critical part of that. In this case, these are all involved ghosts. I've done all kinds of research on ghosts. I now do a program. I've done this program, shared this program about a hundred times all over the U.S. called Things Still Go Bump in the Night, talking about the roles that ghosts play in our culture, which has been very popular. So, I love that. And it does seem like ghosts have become more popular and more people believe in them in recent years that than we've seen in the past because there's a lot of different shows and, you know, a lot of different opportunities to experience that. Uh, have you ever had a ghostly encounter yourself? Um, I, a, a minor ghostly encounter. Not, not, I've talked with a lot of people who have had actual or believe they have had actual ghostly encounters. In fact, one of the things I share in this presentation is that they've done two surveys. I don't know if you heard about this, but they've done two surveys. And in both surveys, they ask Americans, do you believe in ghosts? 50% of Americans said the answer is yes. And in another pair of surveys, they ask Americans, have you had an, an encounter with a ghost? Do, or do you believe you have? And one out of five Americans said that they believe they've had some kind of personal encounter with a ghost. So that kind of tells you how widespread it is in the culture. That's kind of where I start my presentation. In my own personal experience, it was simply a, a very brief, probably exposure more than encounter, but it was on a ghost tour in Nashville. And in one of the one of the stops on the ghost tour, we were viewing a room that was supposed to be haunted, and I saw an orb. You know what an orb is? Mm -hmm. okay. I sure do. Readers that don't, it means that it's one of the evidences, it's one of the physical evidences of ghosts that they don't have any explanation for. So it is, it appears to be, to the human eye, it appears to be a three-dimensional ball of light that moves without any any scientific explanation about an enclosed space. So, and that's what that that's what I saw. I learned since then that that is the most common uh, visual physical manifestation of ghosts that have been documented in the world. I'm going to need you to bring this talk to Denver because I'm very interested in hearing it. So that's a side note. It sounds like the topics that you weave into your books often are very timely, or at least with cruel lessons, you know, there, there is a big issue right now with, uh, a known drug that is causing a lot of deaths here um, that people need to be more aware of. But I also know it takes time to write that book. So when you start writing, you know, do you know, like, yeah, this is a problem now. It's going to be a problem when I finish the book. Or did that kind of just happen that we're currently in the middle of this huge crisis with fentanyl and it being laced into other drugs? Or was that, I don't want to say a happy coincidence, but a happy coincidence? Well, I, it wasn't. <clears throat> I certainly didn't plan any drug uh, <laughs> drug epidemic to be able to. But but I figured that regardless of when I wrote the story, uh, when, regardless of when I released the story, uh, that drug problem isn't going to go away. 
it is worse here than it is in other countries. So there could be things we could be doing that we're not doing, but but I didn't think that that's going to change. <clears throat> One of the things that I do, I want to talk a little bit about this, is all of my books I use what I call the MASH effect. Do you remember that incredibly wonderful show from the from the 90s of MASH, which was a movie, well, actually was a book first, then it was a movie, then it was a TV series. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, 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 for, for, if it, you have viewers that don't remember that, it was a uh, comedy, supposedly, actually we would call it now dramedy probably, uh, mm-hmm. sitcom, uh, uh, that was supposed to be uh, take place in the Korean War about the horrors of the war of in a mass hospital and but it was actually in reality it was a satire on the vietnam war so even though the word vietnam was never mentioned even though the everybody watching knew that what they were really talking about were the horrors of what was going on currently in the vietnam war so what i did and what i've done in all my books is actually use an older time. So I actually chose the 90s. And I'll talk about this for reason for this one in, purpose, uh, in a minute. But to, to try to make a comment about what's happening now, instead of getting wading into the political waters of whose fault is it? Should we close the border? And is it coming from China? Or is it coming from... I, I didn't want to get into any of that. So I've this story is actually set in 1995. The reason I said it in 1995 was it was a very... Uh, I set it against the backdrop of uh, the just say no. You're probably too young to remember that, but the just say no uh, and the D.A.R.E. program, which now, as a researcher, we know had almost zero effect on keeping kids off drugs. It was a very ineffective program. So I use that kind of as a contrast, as a backdrop for what's going on. The kids in my stories are experimenting with a very by today's standards, a very tame drug. Uh, I mean, yes, they die, but they die because they car, car crash. They don't die from the drug. Today, you know, the danger is so horrific. I, I was at a session uh, on drugs, and they were explaining the two things I did not know, that if you have the right, the wrong, if that when kids, well, no, no, when anyone takes fentanyl one time, it alters the chemistry in your brain forever. One one dose, period. And then, of course, it only takes one wrong dose to kill you. In the 90s, that was not, you know, you never heard of that. So the danger today is far greater than it was in the 90s. But I'm hoping the story serves kind of as a metaphor, because what it's really about is having conversations with kids about this. And to do that, I don't, I've actually decided to partner with a national group called Natural High. They're a youth, they're a drug prevention for youth group. Um, uh, And I really like them because they provide resources for parents and teachers to talk with kids about drugs. And they have done the research and make sure what they use actually works with kids. And they do all, they provide, they're a nonprofit and they do all these, they provide all these resources for free. So I'm actually donating a profit of every book to that organization to help further their effort because I think they're on the, they're on the right path. I don't have, I have this this partnership is a little new, but it's going to be there. Will be a little sticker on there that says "Natural High." Eventually, I love that. That's that's so cool that you're able to take something that you've done and parlay it into helping in what is such a, a horrible issue that we're dealing with right now. What is next in the writing world? 
for you? Do we do we have something in the hopper? I always have something that I'm working on. In fact, I just completed my newest work, which is no connection to any of this at all. It's actually a historical fiction about the Culper Ring. How are we doing on time? Do you have three minutes to me explain? Um, absolutely. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Culper Ring. Most people are not. The Culper Ring was the secret, the spy, secret spy organization organized by George Washington to help win the, win the Revolutionary War. Very small group. Uh, the group consisted of six men, or seven, depending on how you count it, and one woman. The six men were not identified until 20... All, correction. All six men. The last of the six men were not identified until 2019. That's how secret it was. And, wow. the, woman, and the woman has never been positively identified. So I took the historical details that we know about that, and I created a fictional character, a woman, a teacher, who who becomes the female member of the Culper Ring, and that's and that's my newest work. Which uh, we'll see where that goes, but I'm really excited about the possibility. It's really a, it's an interest, very interesting, fascinating chapter in history that uh, not many people know about: the assassination of George Washington. Uh, and the fire of New York. It's a really, it, it was, again, huge amount of research, just meticulous research to get all the details right, uh, but a lot of fun to write. I think readers are going to like it. And when can we potentially expect that? I don't know. That's In fact, it's so new, it only went out to the agents this this last week. So who knows? Maybe next year, maybe the year after. Uh, I will, in the meantime, uh, next year, I will have. Uh, I'm, I'm working on the fourth uh, entry in the Haunted Shore Mystery series, so there will be a fourth entry. Uh, that I've already got the location, I already got the crime, I already got the social issue. So we're putting all the pieces together, and that's going to be my project over the next couple of months. I love it. I'm excited for that. Well, Randy, before I let you go, we're going to take a quick turn here and we are going to chat about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, maybe not so much yours, uh, but we're going to talk about tattoos. Now, you have on long sleeves today, so you could be covered in tattoos, but you're not and that's okay. I would love to know if you were going to get a tattoo, what would you get and where would you put it? That's an interesting question. I, I will be perfectly honest. It's not something that I have ever considered. Um, I would probably do something on my back. That's probably the easiest way to do that. Um, and I would probably do something related to kids because my life has always been dedicated. I have no idea what that tattoo would look like or anything else, but um, I've always been dedicated to serving children. I think that's the best calling in life. So if I had to, if I was going to do something in the tattoo realm, it would probably be in that, in that, in that area. I like it. I mean, there's, there's, there's always a chance, you know, there's always a chance. Well, Randy, where can people find you? So if they want to grab Cruel Lessons or any of your other books, if they want to just be able to keep up with you to know when future books come out. Or maybe if they want to come and cheer on some college football bowl games with you, where can they find you? Um, 
the easiest way to find me is at my website, which is just authorrandyoverbeck.com. Couldn't be simpler than that. I'm also available on <clears throat> on Twitter, or I guess I we should say X at, at Overbeck Randy. I'm also available on Facebook, author Randy Overbeck, and Instagram the same way. Um, I should also mention um, they can catch me on any of their podcasts. I have a podcast called Great Stories about great storytellers, where I tell the backstories of famous authors that people know, but they don't know the stories behind them of uh, authors, uh, directors, and poets. So um, I've done Alfred Hitchcock. I've done John Grisham. I've done Tom Clancy. Uh, I have a whole range of them. Mark Twain. Uh, so people will be fascinated by what they, they they think they might know about John Grisham, but they don't know the story behind John Grisham. And that's what my uh, podcast is. So it's called Great Stories About Great Storytellers. Excellent. So everybody needs to go follow and download that right now. Randy, you have been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share about your experiences in the school system, your writing, and what we have to look forward to in the future. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Claudia. I've had a great time. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media so you'll never miss what's going on. Remember, until next week, you are strong enough, you are worth it. Thank you for listening to the Strong Enough Podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform by searching Strong Enough. And on YouTube, we're on the Spear Talk channel. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Strong Enough Pod. If you have suggestions for an upcoming episode or a future guest, please reach out at strongenoughpod at gmail.com. Remember, you are worth it.